0: Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now. And planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy, and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?
2: you got problems that you ought to be concerned
0: with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret, but you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing
2: has begun.
0: It's back with money with Gabby. Done. Worry for Gen Z has been on the forefront of my mind during this year and a half of our global pandemic. If you listen to my other podcast just between us, then you know that I've been speaking a lot on there about the trauma young people, especially Americans, must be sustaining during this time. In particular, an article on ProPublica by Alec McGillis called The Lost Year, What the Pandemic Costs Teenagers, struck a real chord with me. The piece is about the rise in teen suicides in small towns mostly centered around the cancellation of the high school football season. It's a very specific group that I think reflects the larger impact this pandemic will have on people in their teens and early 20s. I was incredibly moved by the piece, so if you can handle it, please check it out. I've been thinking about this since we first went into lockdown in March 2020. To be completely frank, if I was a teenager during this time with all of my mental health issues unsorted, for those new to the show, bipolar disorder largely being the main one, I don't believe I would have made it. When I read that article, I had already become interested in the concept of financial trauma and how it might long-term affect Gen Z. In my research, I found Chloe McKenzie, a wealth justice activist who had written a piece for Amherst College's magazine called The Real Power of Money, where she explored financial trauma. It was the first place I'd seen the term, which I'd been percolating on, used in an official capacity. McKenzie is also the founder of Black Femme a radically feminist nonprofit organization that focuses on giving girls of color the confidence, skills, and resources to build and sustain wealth, according to the organization's website. Mackenzie believes in economic violence, another term that after seven seasons of doing this show, I fully agree with the use of. It is not an exaggeration or hyperbole for young people right now to view their circumstances and situations this way, to name it, to face it as such, to treat it like what it is, If you are a young person, and today I am speaking primarily to Gen Z directly and those who know and love them, you are not alone, and your experiences are exactly as bad as you feel they are. You don't have to downplay it. You don't have to say, well, other people have it worse. Your job prospects, your home buying, your wealth building, your social lives, your health, your very happiness have been deeply marred. This is financial trauma. So let's talk about it.
2: So, Chloe, for my audience, can you tell them who you are and what you do? Absolutely. My name is Chloe McKenzie. I'm a researcher. I'm a wealth justice activist, and I have a number of organizations that essentially I have used to advance wealth justice. The one that I think that I'm most known for is Black Femme, which is a nonprofit And essentially, we go into some of the poorest school districts and cities across the country and help them essentially figure out ways that they can close the wealth gap for their communities, largely through financial education and transforming the school system, but also teaching municipalities and states and policymakers how they can actually transmit or perpetrate financial trauma.
0: What is wealth justice?
2: So to me, wealth justice is a couple of things. It's really a commitment to undoing generations of systemic violence that usually shows up economically and financially. So in many ways, I think people clutch their pearls when they hear me talk about economic violence because we often don't think of some of the experiences that we have financially through the lens of violence. But in many ways, it's because that's how we've normalized some of our experiences. And so wealth justice is really looking at ways that we can undo and heal from a lot of the experiences that I I find that we're required to endure because we live in a country where our economic system is designed to be violent.
0: Yes. Okay. so we're going to get into that. So. I read this amazing piece that you did for Amherst.edu for the the Amherst Story magazine, I think. And in it, you talked about the first time you experienced the power of money. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what those two moments were when you realized the power of money was tied
2: to trauma? So uh, a little bit of context. I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, and Prince George's County is one of only seven counties in the United States where black families have more wealth than white families. So unbeknownst to me, because I was obviously too young, one of the things that I realized that my classmates and I would do whenever we were experiencing racism that was being perpetrated by one of our classmates was You know, they might call us the N-word and we would turn around and say, well, your dad works at the gas station, so therefore, like, you're less valuable than we are. Mm. Super screwed up. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) once you reflect on it, it's like it's an interesting retort of how we could use our class or socioeconomic status to try to undo some of the racial harm that we were experiencing. So that's kind of on more of a systemic or community-based level. On an individual level, there was the moment where... I grew up in a very dangerous and abusive household, and while my parents were getting divorced, I started to notice how money was not only used as a communication tool within the dynamics of the family, but it also was used as a weapon in ways that could ultimately change how somebody or one of my parents would be able to secure their basic needs. Mm Including our own. So we had to essentially play this game to behoove the parent that had the funding to create, you know, or sustain the lifestyle that we had. And so all of that was beginning to shape the relationship that I had with money. And I started to kind of uncover the wounds or the cumulative effect of that experience when I started to do my research.
0: Yeah. I mean, one part that you talked about is the first moment you experience an intense feeling in your body related to money. And then, so I don't think people talk enough about the ways in which there is trauma associated with finances.
2: So what is financial trauma? Money makes us feel, period. It makes us feel, what I say, in vortexes. So you might feel so many different things at once, and all of these things are registered in your body. The next thing that we need to kind of ask ourselves is, what is wealth? Before we can get to financial trauma, we really need to kind of understand this larger dynamic between our relationships with money and wealth and value and worth. And so wealth, all of the wealth in America, every single dime of wealth that was ever created in the American context came from two places. It came from stolen indigenous land and violence against black bodies through the institution of slavery. So regardless of if you are the ancestors of the oppressed or the oppressor, that reality and truth lives within us, and it is embodied in our financial behavior. And I'll talk about that in a second, but that is one of the kind of major seedlings to being able to understand financial trauma. So in many ways, what we've done is our economic system has grown from an institution of slavery. That's pretty much how our entire economic system worked for the first, you know, several decades of the American world. Then slavery was outlawed. But again, then we go through, you know, Reconstruction, 1865, that was really reworking the entire economic system of America, which largely was looking at redistributing wealth, which we know didn't happen because 40 acres and a mule didn't happen, right? If we kind of go through the American context, what we're doing is looking at how our economic system has evolved and also not evolved from its original intention, which was to essentially extract as much value and worth and wealth from people of color and indigenous people in order to maximize the wealth of white men. (laughs) Let's just be real about it. Mm -hmm. And so that reality kind of still rings true. Everything from our political, our economic and social institutions and cultural institutions It still is relevant to today. That's what wealth is in one way. Another way we can think about wealth is this. I always ask this question. How often do you feel as though you are required to experience some form of violence, of trauma, of shame, of abuse, of stress, of dehumanization in order to attain safety, belonging, and dignity? And in many ways, depending on your identity, you might be more likely to have to experience some form of any of that, namely chronic stress, in order to attain any type of material safety that allows you to secure your basic needs. And so for those of us who are required to experience repeated and chronic stress and chronic reminding of our socioeconomic position, which we never had anything to do with, that's going to create trauma and that's going mm-hmm. to then be embodied in our financial behavior. And that's what financial trauma really is. It's the cumulative effect of being required to experience chronic financial stress, abuse, oppression because of your identity in order to secure the material safety that's needed to secure your basic needs, which is you know food, housing, shelter, et cetera, but also belonging and dignity.
0: Yes. And you mentioned that that lives in the body. And I and I have experienced that too in the sense of like physical symptoms of stress and you know I think people are aware of trauma right now and I think they're aware of sort of the idea of historical trauma but I don't think that they realize that those two things are
2: are so tied together. Mm-hmm. Trauma is a lot of researchers call it somatic which means within the body. It's a somatic experience. So even if something is happening that didn't cause a scratch or a bruise or a laceration, it could actually cause a scratch, a bruise or a laceration like on your soul, right? Or something that's within you. It could cause a disconnection in your consciousness. And that's actually what happens a lot with financial trauma is we have so many institutions, largely our cultural institutions, that make us feel as though the socioeconomic harm that we experience is our fault for example Mm -hmm. i can count on you know more fingers and toes the headlines that i see in financial news or blogs about well this 22 year old is debt free and did all this stuff and whatever and is the greatest thing since sliced bread right So in many ways, you would think that those types of headlines that are meant to celebrate somebody having a socioeconomic position is meant to motivate. But in many ways, that's what it's doing is shaming. Mm -hmm. And so that's creating a, a normalized behavior that what we are experiencing at the hands of our economic system is our fault and not actually something that was designed to harm us. And so it's Mm -hmm. interesting to think about not just the way that policies do this, but what I'm really actually most concerned about is how our cultural institutions continue to reinforce this idea that any of the economic violence that we experience is somehow our fault.
0: How do they do that?
2: So that's one way. The other would be there's kind of this large, unspoken American, really Western rule that we can pay money to belong, right? And I'm obviously Mm -hmm. totally a a victim of this. So again, what I want to be clear about is there should be no judgment ever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But here's a great example, right? So just getting the new iPhone. There's such a craze about getting the new iPhone. And in many ways, you know, people would say, oh, well, like, that's no big deal. We're just trying to get the latest technology. And that may be true. But we also know at the end of the day, this has a lot to do with kind of social status, right? And this idea of what we tend to valorize culturally has a lot to do with financial shame. I mean, even the conversations about stimulus checks, Congress members who are so out of touch and very much belong to higher socioeconomic echelons tried to say like, oh, you know, they're not going to use the money for basic needs. They're going to use the money on frivolous items and things like that. (laughs) <laughs> so not only is that abusive, but it's also shaming because it it completely gaslights you, which is to say that we live in a capitalistic system. And so profits are based on this underlying narrative that we have to spend money in order to belong to what the cool crowd, the popular crowd, the people who deserve dignity, right? So this idea of of using your capital, as a means of belonging is deeply embedded in our culture. And it's it's quite damaging to our wealth building capability.
0: So it's hard to parse out having trauma around something that is so ubiquitous. And yeah. I think people might feel like, oh, that's silly. Like, I don't have financial trauma. I just sweat every time I open (laughs) my bank account, but that's normal. I just want to vomit anytime I get a bill, but that's not trauma. Mm -hmm. So can you explain the concept of economic and extra economic?
2: There are kind of two influences that make up your wealth building capability. What I mean by that is your ability to, to build wealth. And when we don't include any social context, we are fed this narrative that you just pull yourself off by the bootstraps and you can be Jeff Bezos tomorrow. Right. <laughs> Which We know is not true. But what my research has uncovered is that. On the one hand, you have your the economic influences on your wealth building capability. Economic influences are things like financial knowledge, financial literacy, the how-tos, money management, all of those different types of, I'll call them cognitive skills, the individual pieces that you could do to maximize or increase your wealth. Mm-hmm. The extra economic side are all of the feelings, emotions, past experiences, the intricate relationships that you have with family members, with political institutions. It's kind of all of the above. It's what we would call like the hippy dippy stuff. And so (laughs) what I wanted to kind of uncover was which one of those has the largest influence or impact on your ability to build wealth. Now. If you were to read any financial literacy book or blog or whatever, everybody says it's the economic, right? As long as you know how to manage your money, you will maximize your wealth. My research says that that's not true. It actually is the smallest influence. My research suggests that it's the extra economic, how we actually figure out how to navigate our feelings and relationships with money and worth and wealth, et cetera, and healing and undoing financial trauma, that has the largest impact and influence on your wealth building capability. There are five natural or automatic responses to trauma, regardless if it's financial or otherwise, right? There's fight, flight, freeze, appease, and dissociate. And think about how often we might do that automatically when we get into economic experiences. We might see a fight response. Fighting response means you get bigger to try to debunk something that might be happening. So one way that we might see financial trauma in the fight response is potentially buying things that make us feel like we are socioeconomically empowered, right? Instead of just knowing Mm -hmm. that inherently – with our own kind of inner knowing and consciousness, that's not enough. And society purports to tell us that we have to wear certain things. We have to look a certain way in order to be treated as though our socioeconomic status is of primary importance, right? Or it's this idea that we have to go on this quest for more above all else. That's, there's nothing we can be satisfied with. So that's a, actually a fight response. And again, there's no judgment with that. I, I've i definitely done that and continue to do that and, and, and figuring out how to navigate that. A flight or a freeze response is being avoidant. In many ways, people who are experiencing, right, the strife of rent bills piling up. So yes, there's a moratorium on paying your rent, but a lot of people still cannot pay their rent. And so there's all of this back rent that is now, if you were to log on to your portal to pay your rent, not only do you see the rent that's due tomorrow, but you see all the rent that you've missed. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people just won't even look at it because it's so traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Dissociate would be, if you watch Veep, when Mike McClintock figured out that he was just like in just oodles amounts of debt. And he was just like, well, screw it. I'm going to go buy a boat and just keep (laughs) keep spending. Right. That's a dissociation of to say I have to strip what I'm feeling because I feel like I'm drowning so much that I'm just going to keep actually exhibiting the same behavior that's making me feel like I'm drowning. Right. And then to appease that could even look like, "Okay, well, I know I shouldn't spend this money, but I'm going to because it's so important to my feeling like I belong. We do this all the time. And if what that's showing us is just how pervasive financial trauma is in our culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, even disassociation to me, and I'm not a researcher, but to me, would be just like looking at the bill in your hand, zoning out, and then just throwing it away. That's correct. (laughs) Okay, so so when you talk about building
2: wealth, what sort of building wealth are you talking about that's being hindered by trauma? There are three things I like to get across when I talk about building wealth. The first is, let's talk about the difference between my definition of wealth and I would say if you were to Google wealth, like building wealth, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the conventional definition of wealth is captured in your net worth. How many of us have gone every time Beyonce drops an album, forbes or business insiders like beyonce's net worth right (laughs) and so your net Mm -hmm. worth it's a number it's a quantity that essentially compares the value of all of the things that you own which are known as your assets and it compares that to all of the money that you owe which is called your liabilities and when you do a simple subtraction problem you take your assets you subtract liabilities that's going to give you your net worth I will say that the vast majority of Americans, particularly millennials and and now Gen Z, have a negative net worth. And that's largely because of student debt and let's be real, the inaccessibility of like all of the other assets that we're quote unquote supposed to have. Right. And by the way, just really quick tidbit here, if you see things that talk about what you should be doing with your money, please flag that as potentially something that could make you feel shame. Just be aware. Mm -hmm. So that's what wealth is in the on the conventional side of things. So the second factoid that I think is important in this that I want to be clear about, we talked about where wealth came from in the American context. So to really boil that down, and this is, you know, where a lot of people are like, whoa, Chloe, you're going too far here. But the T is this. To amass great wealth, I'm talking Jeff Bezos, you know Buffett, Warren Buffett, all of these people. To amass great wealth in this country, which, as we know, yields the greatest amount of power, it requires violence in order. Of course, to build Look, it.
0: Chloe, you're not gonna get any. You're not gonna get any <laughs> resistance on this show. Okay? Yes, this show. This show is an
2: anti-Jeff Bezos. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. And and it's, it's proof, right? We look at how much wealth he has generated just from the pandemic and how violent he's being to his workers. That's why they're trying to unionize. Okay. No, yeah, these billionaires must inflict trauma in order to reach where they are. That is correct. And so that is the kind of very profound paradox of building wealth in the American context is that to some extent there's kind of this proverbial line once you cross over that threshold in order to sustain or continue to grow your wealth you have to commit acts of violence to do so so a lot of people are like okay well i want to build wealth because i want to be able to like secure my basic needs and live the life that i want but i don't Mm -hmm. want it to be violent right so like what does that look like Mm -hmm. and so this requires us to really understand wealth in a different terminology first and foremost I believe, and mind you, I'm an investment advisor, I'm a wealth manager, all of these things, and people hate me because I just flip everything on its head. I do not believe wealth can be quantified. Why? Because I don't think quantities can ever really capture the multi-layered texture of anybody's experience anyway like Mm -hmm. how often do you go to the doctor and maybe you hurt your foot and they're like on a scale of one to ten where are you and it's like that's so effing annoying right (laughs) like it's like but that doesn't mean anything like in the grand right so it's the same it's the same principle so here's what i say if you want to build wealth without being violent i submit to you this question what does peace look like to you like your own internal personal peace or groundedness or happiness, whatever word you wanna use there, what does that look like? And in order to kind of build wealth using that, all you're going to do is figure out how do you fund that vision? So to me, I have no desire to be a millionaire because to me, I think that in order to become a millionaire, you actually have to you know, create violence in some economic form in order to get there, unless you win the lottery. You know.
0: <laughs> the lottery's not great either. <laughs>
2: I agree. I was going to say, well, we could go down that rabbit hole and like be super nerdy and talk about how the lottery is a form of economic violence, but we'll we'll deal with that, right? But in other words, that's a totally (laughs) different episode. (laughs) Stay tuned, (laughs) folks. Exactly. Um, But I look at and say to myself, okay, for me to feel inner peace, these are the things that I know that I need, and I then figure out what are the ways that I need to fund that. And then that's kind of my version of wealth. So it's gonna look way different than a number. Yeah, there are numbers involved, because again, like unfortunately it's not free to be, to have inner peace, unfortunately. It's not free to like be Mm -hmm. able to be housed and all these other things, but it can never be captured by just a quantity alone. And that's one of the Mm -hmm. ways that we can actually strip violence from the activity is by not relying so heavily on numbers.
0: Pre-pandemic or even during pandemic, but just in general, how does financial trauma specifically affect
2: Gen Z? Uh, Yeah. So let's pre-pandemic. Good idea. Let's start there first. (laughs) (laughs) Pre-pandemic, we're dealing with a world where the student debt crisis is imploding and getting significantly Mm -hmm. worse, being able to secure what I call material assets, like buying a house, like being able to invest, things like that, are becoming harder and harder to come by despite what we might see on a TV commercial. And the job market in and of itself is continuing to be this very like difficult to navigate space because as we know, you know, minimum wage is, I mean, you talk about economic violence, right next to the definition of that. And so in many ways, financial trauma is likely what a lot of young people experience.
0: So how do you see the pandemic having a long-term effect on Gen Z's relationship to money?
2: What the pandemic is doing is revealing how policy literally is creating the conditions of our lives. That all of this is really just based on a series of choices. So a lot of our political choices are ultimately continuing to perpetrate and transmit financial trauma. And the reason why I bring this up is because what the pandemic is doing is really exposing where some of the largest, I call them transmission centers of financial trauma really exist. College campuses being one of them where we're seeing mm-hmm. the the crisis of housing and food insecurity growing exponentially among college students. And so I think what the pandemic is doing is it's exposing these major centers of financial trauma and it's giving people the ability to to hold people accountable for the choices that are then creating these really stark conditions economically and the devastation that's kind of ensuing from it. Now, let me not sit here and minimize or omit the serious emotional, economic, and social toll that this is also having on this generation. So I had a a, a reporter ask me, like, oh, like, will Gen Z end up looking like the baby boomers and they'll just, like, hoard all of their money um, just because, you know, something could happen? I'm like, I actually don't think that's what's going to happen in many ways, one, because after the great depression i don't know we had some of the most progressive and socialist policies ever that ever passed uh, and we Mm seem to be struggling being able to find the power and strength to do that currently even though again i still have hope what i wanted my research to really do is give people the language to put the blame back where it belongs so so much of Mm -hmm. our economic system was designed to then rely on our cultural institutions like social media, music, et cetera, to make us feel like what we are experiencing is our fault. Because if we continue to believe it's our fault and based on our own personal financial decisions, nobody actually has to create systemic change, right? It's the same thing in the climate change Mm -hmm. world. It's like, oh, no, like companies who produce like a ton of, you know, emissions and plastic and whatever, they're not the problem. You're the problem because you don't recycle Mm -hmm. on your own, right? It's the same thing. So what I'm hoping the research does for Gen Z is to say this, you know, when we go into conversations with our employers, it's one thing to say, Mm -hmm. I know that I'm not getting paid the same as my male counterpart, and that's unfair. What would it also look like to say you're being financially abusive, Mm -hmm. right? I feel like that would then have to trigger an HR investigation when you use the language of violence. And I think in many ways, I know it's, you know, a lot of people want me to, once again, use quantities to talk about what this is going to do to impact younger generations like Gen Z. What I actually think this could do is help us use a new form of language that I think has always been present, but we've been maybe a little hesitant to talk about just how violent our experiences financially are. And if we actually then tell Mm -hmm. the abusers that they're being violent and violating us, I have a feeling that, like, right, there's two things that, like, white men hate being called. One is racist and the second is violent, right? So (laughs) what we want to then do is, like, let's use that to our advantage. That's actually the power that we can broker. Putting a name on it, empowering yourself and putting a name on it rather than feeling, like, ashamed. Yes, 100%. And financial shame is, I think, probably the biggest concern that I have for Gen Z, but I feel like the financial shame is like exponentially worse for Gen Z. And that's kind of what I fear a lot because financial shame is, again, this kind of psychological effect of being told that the harm that you're experiencing is your fault. And so carrying that weight not to, doesn't just have like financial implications and how we, like you said, mm-hmm. throw away the bill, but it also <sighs> creates a, a layer of silence among people who are experiencing financial shame that we need to also break, right? So there's so many movements around breaking silence and financial shame has to be one of them.
0: You know, I worry I worry about them. I mean, I just worry about them in the pandemic in general, like I really feel for Gen yeah. Z and I think that they're going to come out of this with I hope hope very political but also, you know, I think they're going to be irreversibly changed yeah. by 2020 2021. Yeah. What advice would you have for them in the next few years?
2: The big thing is again recognizing that this isn't to say that any edu- you know financial education out there or financial advice that you might find out there is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I think what I'm trying to say is take the messages that you receive And only take the things that you feel are there for you. Keep that, right? And then get rid of the rest. So start by recognizing that so much of your financial journey is largely dependent on your own personal vision for things. That, you know, sure, you know, the millennials or the Gen X and the baby boomer generation, like, have so many prescriptions for us when it comes to, like, financial whatever. And a lot of that's driven by the financial services industry, which by the way, is like deeply dependent on needing clients. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. especially for Gen Z, like we can't afford them. And so the financial services industry is having a major crisis because they're like, oh crap, like we've literally priced out an entire generation of people. And so they're continuing to try to like purport to tell us certain things about what we should do with our money so that we can afford them all of a sudden. So my advice is to really remind yourself that like, Material wealth, not in the violent way, but material wealth is built in what I like to call unseen slowness. Mm. So a lot of that you're not going to see for a very long time. And the other advice is that it, there is no amount that is too small to start with. Mm. I think that that's kind of the other big myth is that like, oh my gosh, like once you hit $10,000, like then you're cooking. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Like if you want to start with $10, like that's totally fine. Because again, everything's going to move with unseen slowness. So in general, how can people heal from financial trauma? I'll answer in two ways. The first is I'm still working on that. (laughs) And so please continue to to follow up. I put out as much as I can as I get insights. But what I can say, the insight that I have so far is to begin naming it. As soon as you are able to acknowledge how your financial experiences have shaped your current financial behavior, when you're able to name when you might be experiencing financial shame or you might be experiencing financial trauma, you've actually changed your wealth building capability. That's a kind of really profound and like striking thing, because like I said, your financial trauma and things like that, the extra economic, those have a larger influence on your wealth building capability. So even just being aware and naming what you're experiencing, now that you're aware of it, you're already reshaping your financial behavior, and therefore you're increasing your wealth building capability. And so notice doing that, I didn't tell you a single like economic thing, right? Like, oh, like go save or whatever. (laughs) Literally just naming that experience and, and what you might be enduring is actually going to have a bigger effect than doing some of the other things like saving or investing and things like that, which, again, I'm not saying are not important. They definitely are. But just actually kind of taking stock of that is is going to have a huge impact on healing financial trauma, but also building wealth.
0: Wow. Well, it's been an honor to be a guest on your podcast. Well- <laughs> 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 Where can people find out more about you and your work and, and
2: this kind of financial trauma insights? So you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram at Chloe B McKenzie. Also go to my website, com, which is where I release all of my research. I have a diary where if I haven't really grounded it in research, but I have some hypotheses, I'll usually put things there, poems or pictures or anything like that. And pretty much if you just follow any of those things, you'll be able to see a lot of the work that I'm doing in the world. And there's a downloadable book, yes? There is. So I wrote a book two years ago called The Activist Investor, And this actually teaches you how to begin trading stocks, but from the lens of an activist. This is actually really relevant because it's very funny. All of the Reddit stuff that happened, (laughs) what I describe in the book, how to do that, but do it for good. Not to say that they didn't do it for good, but to do that for good, using a lot of like cultural analogies and things like that. So it's not one of those lame, boring, like text heavy books that like confuses you. I hope it's something that you'll laugh at and then it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I made that free last summer after Breonna Taylor was murdered. So in her honor, I wanted to be able to give everybody the opportunity to begin building some of that material wealth that we need to yield power in the country.
0: Hello, welcome to Dear Gabby, the segment where I listen to your voicemails, read your emails, listen to your voice memos, and read your reviews. Okay, so here are some five-star reviews. If you leave a five-star review, I will read it. On this show. Mishank wrote. Learn so much and funny. These shows are engaging, funny, and super informative. I've learned so much about personal finance, financial systems, and the world broadly. Highly recommend. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, the world broadly. That makes me so happy. Here's another five-star review. And this one really, it, it took a turn. <laughs> C. Whistler. The subject line is meh. So with five stars and the subject line being meh, I had to read it. A whole new perspective on what it means to manage money and your finances. I hope that finances won't stay a taboo topic for so many of us and we can openly talk about how much we make and where our money goes with what we got working for us. I think society focuses too much on making this much, quote unquote, and putting this much away every year so you can retire. What even is the purpose of having money? To show how much value we put into society? That does not always match how much we make. Gabby covers all types of topics and I love her show. Wow, thank you. I think the meh up top was really just meh towards finances in general and not towards this show. But that was a journey that I had to go on. So thank you so much, everyone. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in terms of other people finding the show. You can also write in to GabbyisBadWithMoney at gmail.com. You can write an email or leave a voice memo. And you can also call us at 844-474-4040, and we will play voicemails that you have left us. Okay, thank you. Done.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein,